No, it's a joy to be here. Uh, my name is Paul Shirley. I'm the pastor of Grace Community Church in Wilmington, Delaware. And um, like I said, I've met many of you and, and, and know many of you. So it is a joy to be back here worshiping uh, with you on this Lord's Day. So appreciative of the invitation of Pastor Tom and the elders to be here and be able to minister with you this morning. Uh, it is a great joy to be with you. And uh, even as I'm with you this morning, I bring you greetings from the saints gathered in Delaware this morning, worshiping the Lord. Uh, not only is their love with you, but their prayers are with you and your sweet pastor as well. Uh, so they asked me to come as their representative in order to express their love to you and to communicate the fact that we are praying for you. So uh, it's a wonderful thing to be able to be here, and it's an even better thing to be able to be here and open up God's Word together. And so as we prepare to open up God's Word, will you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we do thank you for this opportunity to worship your name through the preaching of the Word. Lord, I pray that as your Word goes forth, it would go forth faithfully that it would go forth accurately, and Lord, I pray that it would be received faithfully. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work within us to give us understanding of your words and to give us stronger faith in your word. And Lord, we pray that even if there's someone here today who's never believed in the truth of your word and the gospel, that your spirit would work in their hearts to open their eyes, that they might see Christ for who he truly is that they might see him and believe in him. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We'll be in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 19 this morning. And I've titled this morning's message, A Justified Message. See, it was... About 502 years ago on Thursday that Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, and as historians would look back on it, that was the date that launched the Protestant Reformation. And what ensued from those 95 theses was a spiritual and a significant battle for the doctrine of justification. Martin Luther fought a spiritual battle for this doctrine of justification, but long before Luther, the Apostle Paul had to fight his own battle for the doctrine of justification. You see, as we study the book of Galatians, we recognize that Paul is writing to persuade his readers to reject a message that departs from the free grace of the gospel. And in order to convince his readers to avoid the lure of a moralistic legalism, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells his readers about a time when he had to confront, of all people, the apostle Peter. See, although Peter affirmed the truth of the gospel, although he affirmed the doctrine of justification, for a brief time, Peter was not living in accordance with the truth. And our passage for this morning recounts what Paul publicly said in order to justify his confrontation with Peter. And what we see is that it's all about the doctrine of justification. 
Now, we're going to look this morning at verses 15 through 19. There's so much that we could look at in this chapter, but I've only been invited for one week, so we're just going to look at verses 15 through 19. But I do want to read for you, beginning in verse 11, and read all the way down to verse 21 for you, so you'll have the entire context in your mind. So, Galatians chapter 2, and beginning in verse 11, and this is the reading of God's Word. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, On the surface, this chapter might seem to be about a disagreement between Paul and Peter over who Peter should have dinner with. However, the doctrinal issues at stake in this moment in church history were really significant, and and they centered around what really is the ultimate question that every person must answer. You see, the the, the most important question that anyone could ever ask is the question recorded in Job chapter 9, verse 2. How can a man be right before God? That's the ultimate question. How can you, a sinner, be right before God? Our minds are consumed with all kinds of questions of this earth. What what are we going to do with the rest of the day? What am I going to have for lunch? What does the week ahead hold for me? What does the year ahead hold for me? What are all these issues that I have to deal with? Our our minds can so easily be consumed with all of these important but not ultimate questions that we forget about the fact that one day we will stand before our Creator. Which means the most significant question that anyone could ever ask and answer is how can I be right with God? Now, the world answers this question in various ways. 
Some, many, will appeal to an inherent goodness within themselves. Of course God is going to accept me. Have you met me? (laughs) What are you talking about? Or, Or maybe sometimes it's more subtle. Well, I'm basically a good person. We're all basically good people. There are just some bad influences out there. Which, by the way, just as a side note, if we're all basically good, where did the bad influences come from? Think about it. <laughs> but, but some think that, that within them there is enough goodness that they would naturally be acceptable to God. Others answer this ultimate question by appealing to their earned worthiness. I know I've made mistakes in my life, but I've made up for those. I had one individual tell me, look, if you, if, if, if you took all my good deeds and, and put a bean in a jar for all my good deeds, and you took all my bad deeds and put a bean in the jar for all the bad deeds, I think my good beans would outweigh my bad beans. Now, of course, that's theologically inaccurate, and it's kind of strange to think about eternity in terms of beans. <laughs> but it does represent what so many believe. If I can just do enough good to outweigh the bad, that will then make me right with God. Others would appeal to what I would call a divine partnership. Well, I know that I can be right with God. I know I can enter into his presence. I know I'll be in heaven one day because he has done all this for me. And then I kind of sealed the deal with this that I've done over here. It's a partnership. uh, Partnership. If I'm going to be right with God, God's going to do his part, and then I'll do my part, and we will work together to create the kingdom of God. Of course, the problem with these answers and those like them is that the world's answers to this question seeks to bridge an infinite gap between God's holiness and man's sinfulness through finite measures. You understand, there's not a little gap between you and God. God's God's holiness is infinite. It's immeasurable. When we fall short of God's glory, we fall completely short of God's glory. And there are no finite measures that we can take in order to make ourselves right with a holy God. That's why when we're trying to answer this question, how can a man be right before God, We need not look to the world's answers because God has provided us the answer. God has supplied a powerful answer to this question, which we find in the doctrine of justification. You see, in this grace from the Lord, this grace of justification, God does a work on our behalf to change our standing before him. On the basis of the righteousness of Christ, we are made right with God. That's the essence of this doctrine of justification. Justification is is that judicial decree on God's part that we are no longer guilty, but now in Christ Jesus we are counted righteous. And what an amazing thing that is to come before the the divine judge, the holy judge, and hear the verdict, not guilty, but righteous. One author described the doctrine of justification in this way. 
It is the favorable verdict of God that one who formerly stood condemned has now been granted a new status. And of course, that status comes to us on the basis of what Christ has done for us. If you are in Christ Jesus today, if you have put your faith in Christ, then he is your covering. He is your righteousness. And on the basis of what he has done, you are made right with God. You are acquitted. You are declared righteous. You are pronounced not guilty. And at the same time, given citizenship into the kingdom of righteousness. This is the doctrine of justification, and this is the answer to the ultimate question. How can you be right with God? To be justified by God. That's the only way that you can be made right with God. And this is not only the answer to the ultimate question, but this is also the focus of our text for this morning. In fact, in verses 15 through 19, Paul actually uses the term justified four times. And you may have noticed I'm I'm reading from the ESV translation. I know your church normally uh, preaches and reads from the New American Standard. I apologize, I didn't have time to translate my notes. So thank you for your patience with me. But in the ESV, at least, Paul uses this language of justification, it's translated justified, four times, clearly indicating that this is, in fact, the focus of his attention. Paul emphatically wants his readers to recognize the importance of this doctrine and its impact on their lives. And and this is what Paul wanted when he wrote this because Paul knew that if the churches in Galatia compromised on the doctrine of justification, then essentially all was lost because the gospel would be lost. And so it's important for us to understand what Paul's teaching here. And it's best understood when we understand the context. The the content of the verses we're going to be looking at this morning need to be read and understood in the context of this entire chapter, where Paul is arguing against the legalist who had come to Galatia, and he's also recounting his confrontation of Peter. In fact, in your Bibles, you may have it under a different heading, verses 15 through 21, than the previous section. But I think the best way to understand verses 15 to 21 is this is the content of what Paul said to Peter. When Peter separated himself from the Gentile believers and only fellowshiped, only ate with Jewish believers, this is how Paul publicly confronted him. He did so by appealing to the doctrine of justification. Paul is demonstrating that he was, in fact, justified to confront Peter on the basis of the fact that we are all justified by faith. And and, and Peter's public actions toward the Gentiles undermined this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And, and, And Peter brings all of this up because he wanted his original readers and he wanted readers like us. Paul brought this up, I should say so that we would avoid the same kind of error, the same kind of compromise, the same kind of wrong thinking on the doctrine of justification. And so as we look through these verses, particularly verses 15 through 19, we're gonna focus in on our role in justification. Specifically, 
Paul outlines the only two things that are required of us in the work of justification. Two things that are required of us in the work of justification. And, and, and not to give it away, but it has nothing to do with works of the law or being Jewish. <laughs> we find the first of these requirements of justification in verses 15 through 16. Here, Paul makes it clear that you must believe in Jesus to be justified. That's the first stipulation that Paul brings up. In fact, Paul's consistent message in the book of Galatians, and anywhere else for that matter, is that justification is by faith alone. In fact, Paul makes the importance of faith clear in these verses by mentioning it several times. But then also in verse 16, it says, we also have believed in Christ. And actually, grammatically, that's the main statement in verses 15 and 16. We believed in Christ. That's the central focus of Paul's message in these verses. If you want to be forgiven of your sins and found righteous before God, then you must believe in Christ. You you must understand the truth of Christ displayed in the gospel. You, You must be persuaded that this truth is in fact true, and then you must entrust yourself to that truth. You must place your faith in Christ Jesus, and this alone is what leads to justification, not works. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says three times in these two verses. Faith alone is what leads to justification, not the works that we do. And by the way, each time Paul repeats this, it clarifies more and more the role of faith in our justification. For instance, Paul's confrontation here with Peter makes it clear that we must believe in Jesus without exception. Notice what Paul says in verse 15. Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter and Paul possessed everything that the Judaizers wanted. Everything that the Galatians were tempted to chase after. They they had the Jewish heritage. They were law keepers. They were circumcised. All of the religious ceremonies that centered around the old covenant, Peter and Paul had been participants in. That is what the Judaizers were trying to push the Galatians toward. They possessed all the rights and privileges of the covenant promises That's why Paul says that they're not Gentile sinners. And and with this, Paul's not saying that that he and Peter weren't, in fact, sinners. he's, He's using the language of the Judaizers to say, we weren't people who were cut off from the covenant like Gentiles. We were circumcised. We were set apart by the law. In other words, if anyone was going to be exempt from a faith alone message, it certainly would have been Peter and Paul. I mean, one was the exemplar when it came to being a Jew, and the other was the exemplar when it came to being an apostle. If there was a different way to heaven for anyone, then certainly Peter and Paul would have been on that path. And yet, what does Paul say? Peter, we know a person is not justified by works. 
Despite their earthly credentials, even Paul and Peter knew they could only be justified by believing in Jesus. And the implication of Paul's statement is clear. You must be justified by faith without exception. You can't hear the doctrine of justification by faith alone and say, boy, that works great for that guy over there because his life is a mess, but I got things together pretty well over here. Paul's saying, without exception, we know a person is not saved by what they do. A person is saved by who they believe in. You cannot get around this truth because it is a universal truth. Everyone must believe in Jesus Christ to be right with God. But, but notice also this doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's not only without exception, but it's also without addition. See, the Judaizers who were tempting the Galatian churches into heresy would have been happy to say, yes, you must believe in Jesus. But then right after that to say, and you must do X, Y, and Z. These false teachers affirmed the importance of faith in Christ Jesus, but they also wanted to make human works a necessary addition to that faith. And to this, Paul adds again, so also we believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Now, theologically and practically, we know that good works are the fruit of faith. In other words, if you say, oh, Pastor Paul, I believe in Jesus with all my heart, but it doesn't change your life at all, I'm going to call foul on that. You're a hypocrite. I mean, James makes this clear in James chapter 2. When he says, you know, okay, you say you have faith, right, show me your works then. He's not saying works are better than faith. He's saying the only way to affirm faith in your life is the fruit that it produces in your life. So so theologically and practically, we know that the pathway to full assurance is filled with good works that honor the Lord. Paul's not contradicting that here. However, what Paul is saying here is that the good works that you perform as a regenerate person do not add to your justification one bit. You simply cannot add anything by your own effort that would improve on the righteousness of Christ Jesus that you already have. That's why Paul is so emphatic. Works cannot make you right with God. Again, as a believer, good works are pleasing to the Lord, honored by the Lord, blessed by the Lord, useful for the people of Christ, useful for the spread of the gospel, but they do not add to your justification. Paul makes this clear. Works of the law simply cannot justify you. Say, why? Well, for starters, works of the law, talking about the Old Testament, conformity to the revealed will of God in the Old Testament, or the new for that matter, cannot save you because you cannot do it. If you say, you know what? Law's perfect. I'm just going to do everything says there, and then God has to accept me. Good luck with that. I say as a fully convinced Calvinism, good luck with that. (laughs) It won't work. Because of our fallen inclinations, because of our sin nature, 
because of our own desires and our own heart, we simply cannot keep the law in a way that is always pleasing to the Lord. Which leads to another problem with the law. If you're looking to the law to save you, here's another problem. The law cannot atone for your sins. In the Old Covenant, there were temporary measures that pointed to the need for a final measure in the death of Christ. But when you look to the law, there is no provision for a lawbreaker. The law cannot atone for your sins. Works of the law cannot justify you. In fact, that's not what the law was designed to accomplish. The law is good. The law is perfect. The law is holy. The law, when a culture recognizes the will of God, it has a restraining effect on the culture that is positive and important. Additionally, the the law can inform your conscience as you understand the Ten Commandments and all the applications of the Ten Commandments that you read in the Old Testament law. That informs your conscience in such a way that is good and beneficial. Additionally, the law can show you how far uh, how far you fall short of God's perfection and in that way point you to Christ. And, and so in all these ways, the law is a grace from the Lord. It is a blessing from the Lord. It is a gift from God, but it is not a gift that he is intended to use to justify us. The law cannot remove your sin and make you righteous. And by the way, if that is true of God's holy and revealed law in the scriptures, how much more true is it of all the silly rules that we add to the scriptures? In other words, if keeping God's law can't get you into heaven because you can't keep it, it can't atone for your sins, and it was never designed to do that, then how much more impotent are your own rules and preferences in order to get you into heaven? In this case, it did not add to Peter's standing before God when he withdrew from the Gentiles. Actually, you know how many times in the Old Testament the Jews were commanded not to eat with the Gentiles? That would be a big fat zero. This this was not even God's law that Peter was falling back into. And the point in all this is you cannot add to your justification. Faith alone is necessary because the only thing that you can do is believe in the provision that God has already made for you in the gospel. Yes, we should live in such a way as to please God, but we cannot create our own rules. We cannot create our own righteousness that will make us more acceptable to God. We must believe there's no exception to that. We must believe there's no addition to that. And we must believe there's also no alteration to that. For a third time at the end of verse 16, Paul says, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You say, why does he have to repeat himself so much? And I assume if you're thinking that question, you've never had kids. Peter had lost sight of this. That's why Paul had to emphasize it. And in God's wisdom, we still have this because God knows we lose sight of this. Our prideful hearts recoil at the thought that there's nothing that we can do to earn our way to heaven. You don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. 
I want to hear about a loving God who's made a way, and then I want to hear about my own self-sufficiency that can walk that path all by myself. The fallen inclinations of our hearts do not want to admit that our best efforts are unacceptable before God for salvation. We desperately want to do something that will make us right before God in our own power. That's why Paul had to write this. This is why we need this, to be reminded that we can only be made right with God on his terms, and his terms are clear. We must believe in his son, Jesus Christ. It's actually interesting. The end of verse 16 here is actually a partial quotation from Psalm 143, verse 2, which says, no one living is righteous before you. And, 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 the, and the word, the Greek word in the ESV translated no one is actually the Greek word sarx, which means flesh. No flesh will be justified. And, and the word flesh is the word Paul loves to use to highlight our fallen finiteness, our weakness, our inability. In other words, left to our own, we cannot justify ourselves. We must believe in Christ and what he's accomplished if we want to be saved. In fact, our flesh has proven what it can and cannot produce, and righteousness is not on the list. In fact, later on in this very book, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul's going to say to these readers, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Now, in Galatians 2, Paul says, no flesh can be justified or right with God. Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are evident. Here's why, in our own power, we cannot be right with God. Because in our own power, here's what we're able to produce. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That is what we are capable of on our own. And that is never going to lead to the kingdom of heaven. And that is why no one has ever, ever been justified before God based on what they have done. In these verses, Paul is recounting the details of the doctrine of justification that both he and Peter believed to be true. Paul's reminding Peter and his readers that a person can only be right with God through the, through the grace of the gospel and by believing in Christ Jesus. You must believe in Jesus if you want to be right with God. There's no exceptions to this. There's no additions to this. There's no alterations to this. You must believe in Christ. And, and up to this point, Paul has not said anything that Peter would disagree with. But as we look at verses 17 through 19, Paul's now going to address where Peter stood condemned. And, and it's in these verses that we find a second requirement of justification. You want to be justified? You must believe in Christ Jesus. But then in verses 17 through 19, we see also that if you want to be justified by God, you must also repent of your self-righteousness. You must believe in Jesus, which means at the same time, you must repent of your self-righteousness. You see, here Paul's moving from the doctrinal agreement that he and Peter shared to the contention that they were embroiled in. 
So far, he says, we know this, we know this, we believe this. Everything Paul said up to this point, Peter affirmed. But what Peter did not recognize was that his practice of excluding Gentiles from fellowship was creating a massive problem. Peter preached justification by faith alone, but his practice was promoting a form of unacceptable self-righteousness. Peter believed Jesus to be saved, of course, but he was now allowing a form of self-righteousness into the church that elevated some over others. And really one of the keys to understanding these verses to understand what Paul meant when he says that he died to the law. Verse 19, that's the, excuse me, uh, um, verse 17, he talks about these things. And then in verse 19, he says, for through the law, I died to the law. What does Paul mean when he says he died to the law? That's key here. And this is certainly not advocating some form of antinomianism that rejects the authority and the relevancy of the law. When you you understand this phrase, dying to the law, in context, Paul is simply fleshing out the implications of what he's already said. I cannot be justified based on works of the law, and so I've died to the law. In other words, I'm not going to try to make myself acceptable to God on the basis of what I can do. That's what Paul meant when he said he died to the law. He's saying that he's given up on the idea that he can justify himself. In other words, in this context, dying to the law is simply another way of saying that he repented of his self-righteousness. Paul's saying any self-righteousness I had that thought that through works of the law I could be right with God, I have died to that idea. And in the process of saying this to Peter and in this confrontation, Paul's words help us to understand what it means to repent of self-righteousness. For instance, verse 17 shows us that repenting of self-righteousness means that we must all acknowledge our sinfulness. Verse 17 says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? What's Paul talking about here? Well, what Paul's doing is he's, he, he's, he's talking about what happened when these men came from Jerusalem and saw Peter eating with Gentiles. So, so as Paul and Peter were seeking to be justified by faith alone and then living according to that, these men came and, and they were the ones who found Peter to be in sin. I cannot believe that you would eat with Gentiles. What would your mother think, Peter? Paul's describing here how they were perceived as sinners by these Judaizers because they were fraternizing with Gentiles. And then what Paul says is, okay, if they're right, if it was sinful for us to be one with Gentiles because we're all saved in exactly the same way, does that make Christ a minister of sin? In other words, is Christ the one who produced that sin? Because Christ saved us all the same way. And oh, by the way, remember the vision that you received from Christ, Peter, that said to eat all those unclean foods and then go have dinner with Cornelius, a Gentile? If, Peter, it was a sin for you to eat with Gentiles, wouldn't that make Christ the minister of your sin? And of course, before Peter even had the opportunity to answer the question, Paul immediately said, certainly not. May it never be. It was absurd to think that Christ caused Peter to sin. And it was absurd to think 
Christ caused Peter to sin because it was not a sin to eat with Gentiles. And, and, and the truth undergirding this whole contention in verse 17 is the fact that we are all sinners. And that's exactly what the Judaizers rejected. They didn't want to believe that. But by convincing Peter to stop fellowshipping with the Gentiles, they assumed that the Gentiles were inherently more sinful than Peter. The Gentiles, Peter. I mean, I know we're all saved because of Jesus, but we're, we're Jews. We've got our culture to protect. We've always done it this. These are your people. You're gonna leave your people behind in order to go worship? They can, they can follow Jesus all they want. Doesn't mean you have to eat dinner with them. Doesn't mean you have to go worship with them. Doesn't mean you have to start doing the, the things that they do. We have our culture don't you want to pass this along to the next generation? You ever heard something like that? That's what Peter heard. That's what Peter heard. But the fact of the matter is that Paul and P Peter were sinners not because they ate with Gentiles. They were sinners because we're all sinners. We are all equal before God in our sin. And as believers, we are all equal before God in our justification. We might have some in our midst who are more mature and more godly and more proven than us, but there is no one here who's a true believer in Jesus Christ who's more justified than any other believer. In other words, Peter and these Judaizers, they, they were essentially rejecting the doctrine of justification because they were minimizing their own sinfulness. I don't want to be around them because our way of doing things is more acceptable to God, superior, better. In other words, we're not quite as bad as sinners as them over there. This is something that we must reject. Any form of self-righteousness that would seek to minimize our sinfulness, we must reject that. We also must reject any pridefulness that comes with this. See, verse 18, Paul goes on to say, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And here Paul's saying, it's not a sin to eat with the Gentiles. What would be a sin is if the separating wall, remember from Ephesians, the separating wall between Jew and Gentile that we have torn down through the proclamation of the gospel, if we go back and we rebuild a wall between God's people, that would be a transgression. That's the sin. In fact, this is the exact matter where Peter stood condemned. This is where he was not walking in step with the truth. Peter's action supported a prideful view of the Christian life that was rooted in self-sufficiency and ethnic superiority. And they can be saved, but they can't be like us. And really, one of the implications of this text that we really don't have time to get into this morning, but one of the implications of this text is, is, not, is racism is not only a sin because of a lack of love for one another, but racism is also a sin because it's a denial of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. If you think that you can be saved by Christ all equally, but you can be better than others because of your race, your ethnicity, your culture, whatever, then you are denying the doctrine of justification, which puts us all on equal footing before God. 
If you think that you can do or be something that distinguishes you in God's eyes more than what Christ has done for you, that is prideful self-righteousness. And to be adherents to the doctrine of justification by faith requires that we repent of the pride that would make us think that we are better than others. It requires us to repent of the pride that would cause us to think that we are more worthy of God's grace than somebody else. We have to repent of that. And as we're acknowledging our sinfulness and and as we're acknowledging and repenting of our pridefulness, we must also acknowledge our helplessness. Verse 19, Paul says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. When he says, I died to the law, he is recognizing his helplessness. I cannot obey the Ten Commandments in such a way that will earn me heaven. Are the Ten Commandments good? Yes. Should we pattern our lives after God's revealed will? Of course. Is it a grace in our life to guide us in holiness? Absolutely. But can we get to heaven by keeping God's rules? No. That's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, in this world who did follow the law perfectly, who is perfectly righteous, and yet despite that, who died on the cross for sinners just like me and you. And God raised him from the dead to show that his work was powerful enough to save any sinner. And in order to believe in this truth, the truth of the gospel and be saved, you must recognize your helplessness in salvation. You are completely dependent upon God. You must recognize that the law is not a source of life for you. The lawgiver is your source of life. And by the way, this is in perfect accord with what the law does teach. That's why Paul says in verse 19 again, for through the law I died to the law. Paul's not trying to get rid of the law as, as, as God's revelation. He's saying, no, no, no. Through the law, I repented of all these things. Through the law, I recognized I was helpfulness. In other words, when I, when I truly understood what the law demands, when I truly saw the glory and the perfection and the holiness of God revealed in the law, that is when I recognized I can't do or be that. I must turn to Christ if I want to have any hope to be right with God. It's only when we acknowledge our helpless state before God that we can actually, as Paul says, live to God. When when we repent of our self-righteousness, when we acknowledge our helplessness, that is when we receive the grace of the gospel and that is when we receive the helping grace of God to then live to him in a way that honors and glorifies him. And really, this is right in line with the promise of the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, God said, I'm going to give you a new covenant. And in this new covenant, Israel, you haven't been able to do anything I've told you to do. So in the new covenant, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my spirit. I'm going to forgive you your sins. And I'm going to write my law on your heart. On your heart. What Paul is telling the Galatians is, it's not by going back to the old covenant that we are going to be able to live for God's glory. It's only by recognizing and submitting to the grace of the new covenant that we are going to be able to bring glory to God. 
See, Paul confronted Peter because he capitulated to men who wanted to return to the old covenant for self-righteous motives. And Paul knew that in order to be justified by Christ, we must repent of our self-righteousness by acknowledging our sins, by acknowledging our pridefulness, and by acknowledging our helplessness. In other words, we must recognize that there is nothing that we can do that would make us right before God. There is nothing that we could do that would make us more righteous than Christ can make us. We must believe in Jesus, not in ourselves. That's Paul's point. That's Paul's point. There's a lot of details in this passage. Paul's talking about justification. Paul's confronting Peter. There's all kinds of details here, but when you boil it down, that's it. If you want to be right with God, you need to believe in Jesus and not believe in yourself. The doctrine of justification makes it possible for us to be right with God simply by believing in Jesus and repenting of our sins. And by the way, this is all that's required of us in the work of justification because of all that Jesus did in his crucifixion. Paul goes on to say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And believer, Christ did not die for no purpose. He died to save us, which is why we must look to him and believe in him. We pray with me. Lord, we thank you for these words. We thank you for this truth of your word. And I pray that you would help us to not only believe in these truths for our salvation, but also live according to them. Lord, we recognize the error of Peter in thinking that he had done something that could make him more acceptable to you when he separated from the Gentiles. And we pray that you would protect us from this type of uh, capitulation from the truth. Uh, Lord, and even as we pray for your help in these things, we praise you for the free grace that we have received through Christ in the truth of the gospel. It's in his name that we pray, amen.